Has doping been recognised as an Olympic sport? Can I win a gold medal for a witty retort? In Answer Me This episode 334, we had a question about people having sex at or with public landmarks. What was the one that was mentioned, Ollie? It was the Las Vegas equivalent of the London Eye. Yeah, it was called the High Roller. Yeah, so mm. it's like a, a big wheel that you go round. Yeah, well, don't, don't undersell it. I mean, it's people spending $20 yeah. a time to do that. And we thought, probably wouldn't have so much sex on the London Eye. Mm. But Anonymous has written in to say, I used to work at the London Eye. You have so much power. And I know for a fact that all sorts of depravity took place on board. We would hear of couples engaging in more than just heavy petting. We even heard tell of a man receiving a blowjob in a full car, potentially up to 28 guests. That's beyond... That's that's publicly indecent, isn't it? Unless all 28 are joining in, or at least they're, they're fond of watching. Well, Phil has been screwing in Peterborough Cathedral. Ooh. Um, he says... <laughs> Under the disproving eye of God. He says, Helen, you said no one would have sex in a cathedral. I didn't say that. I uh, suggested that it would be a bad idea. Yeah. Uh, he says, a few years ago, Peterborough had a passport office. That's how every romantic story begins, isn't it? <laughs> uh, where you could turn up on the day and get a passport. Yeah. Uh, two days before I was due to fly on holiday with a group of friends, I discovered I no longer had a passport. It had been stolen in a burglary. So off to Peterborough the next day. I'm glad he has to explain explain why he was in Peterborough. <laughs> That's the part he's ashamed of. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, I don't know if you've ever been to Peterborough, he says, but mid-morning, mid-week, there isn't much to do. So my girlfriend and I wandered around board until we arrived at the cathedral. There weren't many people about, and I don't know who suggested it, but we decided to enter one of the private chapels in one of the transepts and play behind the altar. It is fair to say that neither of us lasted long. By the grace of God. John from Wimbledon. Um, I recently went on a shopping trip with my mum where we parked in the uh, mother and child parking spaces. Considering I'm 41 and my mum is uh, 72, um, were we legally and uh, morally uh, allowed to do this? Morally, no. Morally, definitely no. I may have previously found this funny in a former life, but now I'm someone who struggles with a baby to go shopping. I'm outraged by this bragging john is there an actual age limit on this though uh there probably isn't a formal age limit because i could imagine there are children you know that have difficulties that are older which might you could you know reasonably say need the extra space but by the time you're 10 um, say if you're not in a car seat anymore you don't really need to be in the parent child bit yeah so there's no legal thing stopping this so he's just taken semantic advantage of this yeah mm. legally well, this goes for all parking on private land, by the way. So if ever you get a ticket, so-called, in your Asda or your Morrisons or whatever, uh, there's not really any legal obligation to pay that at all because it, no. it's, it's private land. They did put a sign up saying we'll give you a ticket, but you don't actually really have to pay it. It's the right of the company no. to give you a fine, but um, it's fairly arbitrary and unenforceable, really. It's not, it's not public land that the council are enforcing. I remember because I grew up in a private road, I think there was someone who did print out his own parking tickets for people who parked there when they were going to the station. You will get the odd person like that who... Uh, was very odd. ...leads an unconventional life. We needed hobbies in Tunbridge Wells. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, the supermarkets can come unstuck with this as well because the whole reason that they farm out the administration of the parking tickets to a private company is that they're not responsible. Mm -hmm. So that when you then go in the shop, you don't negatively associate your experience with getting fined in the car park with the brand. I think you still would. But of course you do. And this came to a head a few years ago. I remember Asda were in the news because um, they actually gave a nine months pregnant woman a £70 fine 
for parking in the parent and child bits. Oh, come on, the child is nearly out. <laughs> exactly. And of course, the argument is, well, she has a child on board. It's just not in the car. Yeah. It's on her. So I think generally speaking, you can kind of get away with it. But I think if there's no young child there, you're really pushing the definition. Here's a question from Jude in Auckland, New Zealand, who says, uh, Helen, answer me this. Where did that ever so romantic poem, Roses are red, violets are blue, etc., originate from? Well, like folk music, it's quite hard to pinpoint a definite origin for this. And generally, people attribute the germ of the idea to Sir Edmund Spencer's very long poem, The Fairy Queen, ah. that first came out in 1590. Could you hear from the way I said, ah, ah. That I'd, I'd heard of it. What so, I wanted to do is just leave it sort of open to interpretation as to whether I'd read it or not. Because you're not sure, are you? You're th- I'm pretty sure you haven't read it. You, read it. Your, your R was more like, ah, oh, words I've heard of rather than, uh-huh, yep, no, I'm very familiar with that material. You see, what I was going for was a pitch somewhere in between, because the truth is I've got the book on my shelf at yeah. home, but I've never opened it. Then you're not familiar with book three, Canto six, stanza six, <laughs> which describes a man watching a fairy woman having a bath on a summer's day. And uh, it goes, she bathed with roses red and violets blue and all the sweetest flowers that in the forest grew. Mm -hmm. So at the time, floriography was a big fad in England. That's the language of flowers. Mm -hmm. And each flower had a meaning. And before there was mass literacy, this was a reasonable way to communicate sentiments, I suppose. Um, So So what do you mean? Well, because you could put flowers together and someone would be like, "Oh." oh, you mean like emoji? Yeah, basically like the flower emoji. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you'd send people like a combination of five different flowers and that would mean, yeah. I think you're nice. Well, this is a very big thing in Victorian times. So oh, on, on Because Victorians couldn't actually express themselves because they were so repressed. But sure. on a card, they could put um, like a picture of a rose or something in it. Here's yeah. my bono. Yeah. And so red roses meant true love and desire and blue violets meant faithfulness. So maybe that's what he was talking about. And then there's a bit of a gap in the history of the poem, but it turns up in a late 18th century nursery rhyme collection called Gamma Girton's Garland. And the poem titled The Valentine is The Rose is Red, The Violet's Blue, The Honey's Sweet, and So Are You. Thou art my love and I am thine. I drew thee to my valentine. The lot was cast and then I drew and fortune said it should be you. Hmm. So that... Fairly clearly that's what it's come from. But then in Gamma Girton's Garland, there are also... That one that goes, roses are red, diddle diddle, lavender's blue. That one was very similar. And... The rose is red, the grass is green, serve King George, our noble king. Kitty the spinner will sit down to dinner and eat the leg of a frog. All good people look over the steeple and see the cat play with the dog. When is someone going to send me a Valentine's card with Kitty the spinner on it? <laughs> so that suggests that roses are red and other plant is another colour. Rhymes must have been really common already mm. to have got into uh, Gamma Gunton's Garland. So people were already playing around with the form. Yes, yeah. Which is what is, I mean, when we grew up in the 1980s, every playground had its own variant, didn't they? Heavens, yes. Like the happy birthday to you, squashed tomatoes and stew rhyme. Yeah. Yep. Did, what was it in your, do you remember? Roses are red, violets are blue. Something, something, you something, smell of poo, and so are obviously. You. Yeah. you look like a monkey and you and smell you, like a monkey. Your mum does too, yeah, 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 that kind of thing, yeah. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> well, here is a question from Valerie in Austin, who says, I am a lady in my late 20s. Over the past decade, I've had an odd thing happen to me with surprising regularity. <laughs> I am often offered milk to drink what when i am how odd is that houses. what the fuck well Whoa. by american standards not odd at all because those perverts always seem to be drinking milk as a refreshment yeah except in tea which is where you want it i don't valerie says 
this in and of itself isn't odd. Oh, okay. Uh. She realises, but I seem to be the only one offered this beverage. Okay. Maybe they think you look like you've got a calcium deficiency. Or you're a baby. Or they're trying to discourage you from drinking alcohol. Mm. Valerie says, I don't have any dietary restrictions that would cause this deviation from the normal beverage offerings. I'm lactose tolerant, (laughs) damn it. (laughs) So, Ollie, answer me this. Mm. What odd behaviours have people directed at you and not the people around you? Do you have your own version of always being the only one offered milk at social gatherings? <laughs> uh, I feel like I get offered the supersized option at takeaways. Well, you're very tall. More regularly than uh, people that I'm with that don't necessarily exhibit the same physical characteristics. I know that, you know, if you work in a takeaway, you're supposed to offer every customer the option to go large. Mm-hmm. But I've witnessed them not offer it to some customers and then offer it to me. It's as if they've read my mind and they're like, yeah, this seems like a likely sale. Uh, another thing that happens is people who know me for this podcast and other things mm-hmm. like that assume that I'm really into geek stuff when I'm not. Yes. Um, so uh, the, even if the context is I've just been saying the very words, why do they keep making such shit terrible films for children? <laughs> uh, they will then come back and say, oh yeah, but aren't you really excited about Mystic Avengers 16? And I'll say, no, I don't know what that is because I've, as I've just told you, I'm not into geek stuff. But they just they will not believe right. that, that like a certain kind of taxi driver will not believe that I don't like sport another kind of person that i meet who's who often might be listening to this show right now often that kind of person you're a geek i'm not, not i'm not but, but i'm not a stereotypical i like ben for, folds i don't like doctor who you're a geek for music th- musical theater and things like that yes yes but not yeah like like you say not a, a, a traditional geek what about you helen what uh, do people assume about you that is untrue <laughs> people assume that i hate children just because i don't want to be a parent and so like some of my friends have been like, I'm pregnant, sorry. I'm like, don't be sorry. That's nice. I like babies. I'll probably like your baby. Yeah. Unless they grow up to be a prick. But I don't think they would because I like you and then you'll be the major influence on their life. Why do you think they think that? Because I think they've mutated my voluntary lack of children. Yes. Into antipathy towards children. You must children. be the Grand High Witch. Yeah, exactly. I'm like a Roald Dahl character in their lives now. Uh-huh. Like, stay away from Helen because she's got the child scissors with her and if you're naughty. Yeah. Martin, what do people misconceive about you? I mean, we've had listeners say that I'm, they, they imagine me as being bold. Yes. Yeah, uh, bold with an A, bold. not bold as in bold. Yeah. Tentative, uh, if anything. I think probably people think I like science a bit more than I do. I mean, I do. I did a degree. What? In... You, if you're telling me that you don't like science that much, I then mean, you really I'm have so, misdirected your entire I life. I'm saying I don't fucking love science. Right. I've only got I, one PhD in it. I quite like it, but, you know, so... It's five out of ten. There's a lot of science that I find a bit no, boring. That's a, that's a bit like us saying we don't really like answering questions. Because yeah. that, that's sort of true as well. Like, you know, we don't receive every question that comes into our inbox and think, oh, goody, this yeah, is so exciting yeah, 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 learning yeah. about this. But generally, we like doing this show. You generally yeah. like science. It's not a misconception. Yeah, science is all right. I mean, you yeah, know, podcasting's okay too. Everyone always seems to be very grateful that I have work. And I think <laughs> I think I should that's be I think I should be the person who is most grateful for that. I've got a question. Email your question. To answer me this podcast at googlemail.com 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 Time for a question from Ryan from Melbourne who says My grandfather recently celebrated his 80th birthday uh, an event which involved a multiplicity of my relatives of British dependency 
It's a curious phrase, isn't it? Uh, spending time at our house and requesting endless cups of tea. It's my kind of birthday party. While immediately baffled by how much tea Australians can drink, the question that troubles me more is, Helen, answer me this, what did you Brits drink before you found India? Tea. In fact, Brits introduced tea to India. No. Yes. Wow. Yes. Really? I didn't know that. Yes. Now you're going to tell me that a coal-producing nation introduced coal to Newcastle. They just went and, like, dug up Newcastle, put some coal in there, put it back on top. Um, Chinese tea was introduced to India by the British in attempts to break the Chinese monopoly on tea. Mm. Those wily bastards. So, but let's be clear on this for those that do just think of packets of tea as something you buy in the supermarket. It's a very precious substance uh, a while ago. It is based on a leaf that the British did a, plant in India. It is a leaf, yes. A relative of the camellia. So you're saying that, because India is still a big tea-producing nation, you're saying oh, that's all it. because of the British? Well, it's like tomatoes are a very big deal in Italy now, but that had to be brought over from South America, didn't it? No, really? Yeah. I just assumed that was native as well to Italy. Think of what we think of as Indian cuisine yep. and take out chilies. Because that's another South American uh, plant. You blow my mind. Potatoes and Irish food. The potatoes are a relatively new import. Yeah. Yeah, but everyone knows the potatoes are new. I think of the tomato as being integral to Italian cuisine. Yeah. Yeah, you do. But it's not. Right. Britain really started going for tea around the mid-1600s. It got to Europe thanks to Portuguese and Dutch traders first in the 1560s-ish. And was, was that... Ever green tea, or was that always... It was green tea first, and then black tea became more popular. I think because black tea tasted better when they put milk and sugar in, and I wonder because sugar was expensive, it was like a sign of wealth and class to take your tea with, oh, with sugar. so it's like the people who have, like, Wagyu beef burgers with lobster on. Yeah, it's like it's not enough. Waste. Yeah, it's not enough just to have the tea. That it's is... like, I'm going to fucking put sugar in this as well. Yeah. Yep, because I'm rich. I'm going to use a piece of beef that actually is not well served as a burger, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but whatever. Uh, but then tea became a trend in Britain when, in 1662, Princess Catherine of Braganza of Portugal married Charles II, mm-hmm. and it's like Kate Middleton makes boring dresses and hats into trends Mm. she made everyone into tea (laughs) and then it became super popular in the 18th century because the east india company got into importing it so there was more tea in britain and then they were like fuck the chinese controlling the tea we're going to plant it in india that we've been uh, abusing Um, but before brits got tea they drank mainly booze because the water was not safe to drink yeah now we've covered that uh in reference to other questions in the past this notion that Beer was kind of the staple drink. Beer, mead, yeah. gin. I remember in David Copperfield, he's drinking gin with hot water in it. Yeah. Um, kids, eh? Well, it was only about 40 years ago in the UK that medical advice was issued telling you not to feed your baby brandy. It was such a commonplace thing to do that, you know, people were like, ah, oh, a little bit of alcohol won't harm him. Nanny state. The fermentation made things safer than just drinking water. Although they used to heat up water as well, apparently by uh, plunging a hot poker into it. Right, right, right. But what I find astonishing, really, is that you're saying before there was tea, the kind of national soft drink, the pastime, the thing that you'd have not when you wanted to get pissed or not when you wanted to ease pain. You just wanted to share a fluid with With, someone who who you were not intimate with. Right. That that choice of fluid would be alcohol. That's Why are you surprised by that? That is, like, common um, in cultures all around the world. Yeah, but I... I'm surprised the answer isn't apple juice or nettle tea or something that isn't alcoholic because even then, surely there were people who just didn't want booze. What Uh, did you have if you didn't want booze 300 years ago? Thirsted to death. No, what did you have? You must have had something. Thin soup and gruel. (laughs) 
Well, it's time now to hear a little bit of uh, Vintage Answer Me This for today's intermission. And Natasha in Australia has emailed in to tell us what she's been up to while listening to our classic episodes. She says, I'm currently living in Canberra. I've quickly run out of ways to entertain myself. And as the weather has been cold, I decided to knit myself a scarf whilst listening to some of your old episodes. I've just listened to episodes 48 to 66 Back to back. Back to back. Blimey, what a binge. She says, uh, the podcast only got better over the years, but your, even your early episodes are addictive and a whole world of fun. Well, good. Uh, that's good that you've got had entertainment for your ears. And she's finished the scarf. And you've finished the scarf. <laughs> and anyone else who needs scarful entertainment, go and get uh, our retro episodes. Yeah, our first 200 episodes are available to buy. At answermethisstore.com. Yes. And also on iTunes and Amazon, but we make more money if you buy them from us. And today's intermission is from back in early 2008, episode 45. Robert from Dumfrieshire is back. He says, Helen, answer me this. It's another classic. Does anybody know whether Ant and Deck ever tossed each other off? Uh-oh. And if not, what do we reckon? Oh, dear, Robert. I suppose they know. <laughs> it's their little secret. There are two people. At, well, possibly one person. <laughs> I've been in a lift with Ant and Deck. I've been in a lift with one of Ant or Deck. I think Ant. Which is the one with the shiny forehead? Ant. Right, yeah. He had very good skin. Yeah. He might have been wearing makeup. They weren't tossing each other off when I was in a lift with them, but um, I suppose just me being there would be a block to that fantasy. Usually is. Here's a question from another pairing called Helen and Ollie. Helen and Ollie from Hampshire, who say, we are getting married soon and we're going on honeymoon to Orlando. Honeymoon at Disney World, good choice. Pop over to NASA, why not? Uh, Ollie answered me this. What are the best ways of A, getting an upgrade on our flight short of turning up in wedding dresses and suits? B, getting free shit at the theme parks. Okay, those are two very different things. Very good questions, though. We got a slight upgrade on our honeymoon flight. Yeah, it is actually literally just a case of saying we're on honeymoon. Yeah, we asked at the luggage check-in and they said, once you've gone through the security, ask at the customer service desk. And they were like, oh yeah, premium economy, fine. Had you checked in online before? can't remember because i sometimes wonder whether that's what scuppers a lot of people they check in online they've chosen their seat sometimes they've paid for it then that's administratively difficult i think we hadn't yeah in case so don't don't check in online yeah of course that does potentially mean that you're in the back row next to the toilets if you don't get an upgrade On, on the way back though full plane so we couldn't get an upgrade but they did allow us to take on an extra bag without paying oh that's romance (laughs) that's the more (laughs) but otherwise I, i think i got an accidental upgrade once Again, to premium economy, nothing fancy. And I don't know what motivated that. Well, my mum does this all the time. And she says it never fails. But she is a woman travelling by herself. And she's a very special woman. Uh, Well, she looks glamorous. She does. She turns up making effort. She has a magnetic personality that I'd imagine flight staff could not resist. Well, what she's... There's no polite way of saying this, so I know it's not a politically correct term, but it's what it is. No, she's a fag hack. That's what it is. She turns up at the airport. She finds quite a camp check-in assistant... And huh. she does her thing where she's wearing like a Diamante hat and they right. say, oh, I like your hat. And she goes, oh, it's from this place. And oh, I like your ring. And she basically flirts with the gay check-in wow. assistant. And then... What if there isn't one? Because... There are, come on, Ellen. British Airways, there's always one. 19 times out of 20, I'm checked in by a woman. This works for her. Okay. She goes, she Noted. flirts with the gay guy. But this is the important thing. She's already paid for premium economy. So what oh, works for right. her is woman travelling by herself, good rapport with the check-in guy. In a suit. A suit in a Diamante hat. Uh, yeah. Strong look. She basically, yeah. She, she, it's like Lady Gaga's mum's just turned up at the airport. Wow. Right? And yet it, she gave birth to you rather than Lady Gaga. <laughs> what a waste. Uh, point is, she always gets an upgrade, but 
she gets an upgrade from premium economy to business. Okay. So if she had an economy ticket, then like you, she'd have only probably got an upgrade to premium economy. And is mm-hmm. it worth putting all that effort in just for that? Depends, doesn't it? How much you value that upgrade? Mm. You know, you're basically getting a bit more legroom and uh, a glass of champagne. That's about it, isn't it? Really. Premium economy. Well, you yeah. get metal cutlery. Well, there you go. Mm. Worth every penny. Yeah. Um, to answer the second question, getting free shit at the theme parks. Yes. Uh, I would say you're in luck here um, because you're visiting the United States of America. And they're uh, very courteous. I, well, they just, they love this kind of thing. And they love the English accent. They do. Mm. If you contact them in advance, I think it's crucial to contact everywhere in advance. No point hoping they'll upgrade you and then thanking them afterwards. Write to them, if, if not directly via email or phone, actually put on Twitter, you know, can't wait to visit at Radisson Resort Orlando, whatever it is, mm. you know, on our honeymoon, on our hashtag honeymoon. Oh, very they, good. They will, they just will because they're good at PR. Like they understand that customer mm. service is part of the thing. It doesn't really cost them anymore to chuck in a few extra ice creams or oh. give you a slightly better room or a glass of champagne. They just definitely will. So just uh, yeah. tell them way in advance of you getting there and it'll be fine. How many people pull the honeymoon stunt when they want freebies when they're not married or on honeymoon or whatever and is there anything to stop you getting away with it time and time and time again exactly the same proportion as the amount of people who go around looking at real estate when they're not really an interested buyer and no Mm. but i think that's fine because i think it's built into the uh, offer they know that most people with a conscience don't do that and to be honest what are you getting by saying you're on honeymoon yeah you're getting a room upgrade but you know you've got to dent your own conscience to do that i feel bad even when if I register at a store, my girlfriend's date of birth rather than mine, because I think, oh, if they send out a birthday present on the birthday, it'd be better for her than me. I feel guilty that I've given them my fake birthday. And ah. you, de- you never felt bad defrauding cinemas by buying pensioner tickets. Because they were ripping us off, Helen. Oh, you're They're very inconsistent. Very inconsistent guy. Here's a question from a lady who has chosen to remain anonymous who says, I have just returned from my honeymoon. Mm-hmm. My husband and I visited a relatively undeveloped tropical archipelago. No Disney World for us. Unsurprisingly, we both suffered bouts of loose stools. I'm a little surprised. I didn't know that that was a prerequisite of being on an archipelago. I think that's the undeveloped tropical bit of the archipelago. Yes, Uh, But we dealt with it in differing ways. At the first sign of trouble, I popped an Imodium. And although I didn't feel fantastic, I wasn't shitting through the eye of a needle every ten minutes. (laughs) So eloquent. My husband flatly refused to take one. Opposites attract. (laughs) And what started as a minor stomach upset for him turned into quite serious dehydration. Wow. Only heightened by his insistence that he wanted to, quote, clear out whatever had ailed him. Unaware that what he really needed was salt. Helen, answer me this. Would it have been wrong of me to trick him into taking Imodium or sneak one into him some other way? Probably would have just shot out of me, didn't he? <laughs> I didn't, but I really wish I had, as I feel like his stubbornness deprived me of the nice dinners, days out, and romantic memories you should come home from your honeymoon with. Just preparing you for a lifetime of marriage. <laughs> My main memories are of sitting inside various hotel rooms, absolutely starving, as he didn't want to go out and get some food, listening to him pebble-dashing the toilet bowl. I know this will happen again at some point in the future. Uh, so I could do with some ideas of how to counter it in advance. Huh. This is a very appropriate question for her to have asked you, I feel, as a couple in particular. Oh, great. Martin has notorious bowel difficulties, and I imagine it affected your honeymoon. Uh, apart from that, that time I ate a bison and it gave me diarrhea. But that was... Where but, was that? Where that was in Montana. Mon- okay, Montana. so are your views, Helen, of Montana was... tainted by the bison diarrhea? No, but other well, things in right Montana then. probably physically were tainted <laughs> by the diarrhea. But that was, that was bad karma. I'd seen a bison in, in Yellowstone, and the next day I'd eaten a bison, and I right. feel like it was the way of... of... Not a whole one. 
the gods of, no, not a whole lot, but uh, bison steak. For the, for the, the, the gods of bison telling me that I, divine I, retribution on your. I shouldn't asshole. eat a bison that I just looked at and, and thought found to be beautiful. That's the most religious thing I've ever heard you say. <laughs> it's my most, most religious experience. It's a spiritual moment. Shake my guts out in a, in a Native American casino in Montana. <laughs> what an image! It was a dark day on a honeymoon. I imagine. Maybe what you needed to do was barter with him. You say take this one emoji and if it doesn't work for you tomorrow you can shit as much as you want but let's just try this because look at me i'm fine i'm surprised that he wasn't motivated to respect your wishes because it probably i imagine affected how much sex he had Mm. that's quite a strong bartering technique yeah but if they've flown to a tropical archipelago they were probably too jet lagged to do it anyway (laughs) well exactly so you know if you've got minimized opportunity anyway I just think the chance of you then being in the toilet all the time, you just think, no, this, this is my honeymoon. Yeah. I'm curious what his motivations were. I guess once you've got the chronic diarrhoea, you're not feeling very sexy. Yes, I suppose. <laughs> Most people aren't. Yeah. Some people might be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. could have gone out for the meals on your own and left your husband pebble dashing by himself, but I suppose that Again, honeymoon. also it leaves a kind of bleak honeymoon memory but in yeah. a way it's a funnier anecdote to have slightly weird bleak honeymoon memories if you're just like oh everything's amazing the yes. resort was beautiful they made our towels into swans well this is it i <laughs> i feel actually just from her first sentence uh, my husband and i visited a relatively undeveloped tropical archipelago she wanted that kind of anecdote from the honeymoon otherwise mm. she would have gone to st lucia she would have gone to a sandals couples resort exactly she'd have been playing games in the evening with balloons between your legs and, and having pina coladas stools would have been perfect the whole time <laughs> very firm <laughs> what a catchphrase for sandals to put in their advertising campaign perfect bowel movements <laughs> guaranteed stools. It had an omelette station, a multitude of pools, but 30 quid for parking, WTF. Four Star Hotel. There's Ethernet, not Wi-Fi like it's 1998, but there was a swim-up bar in the rooftop pool. Three Star Hotel. A bit more down to earth, they did still have a pool, but it was full of kids. Two-star hotel. A lot more down to earth. They also had a pool, but it was full of dogs. One-star hotel. There's a body in the pool. Answer me this holiday. All the fun of travelling with none of the stinky toilets or frightening food. Out now at answermethispodcast.com slash albums. Time for a question from Esme from Manchester, who says, Helen, answer me this. Where did the trend of streaking at sporting events originate? The streaking at sporting events trend came out of the streaking trend. Right. Which seems to have been quite big across university campuses, particularly in the USA, in the 60s and early 70s. Was that a political protest thing? I think it was a bit of youth quake thing. Yeah. People were like, hey... We're young. We're going to act like we're young, and we're going to misbehave. Yeah, well, I that was the whole yeah. hair thing, wasn't it? Yeah, but let the sunshine in. Let's not go to Vietnam. Let's have sex. That's the whole musical for you there in, <laughs> in one sentence. But there is an unconfirmed, but somewhat documented earlier college streak from 1780. Oh yeah, in Harvard, and the person who did it was the 15-year-old son of America's second president, John Adams. Hmm. So that's probably why they hushed it up. It was a bunch of 15-year-old boys and they were drunk. Yeah. 
that's that's how these things happen. Uh, we should define streaking though, rather than just being naked mm. in a place. Sure. Like it's pranky, yeah, or it's for a dare, yeah. or it's protest. But it's not just like having a naked stroll. Like there's running. Like, yeah, you have to leg it whilst yeah. naked. Don't you? And, and actually, I think you do need to be naked. And that's another definition that I'd put on it. I, I've seen sometimes on the internet underpants. Someone will say, yeah, or not even, or just. They will someone who invades the pitch and runs across the pitch yeah. write an article That's about why streaking. I streaked. Like you didn't streak, no. you're wearing your clothes. Yeah. Yeah. At least have the decency to get your balls out. <laughs> the first confirmed streaker, and I guess we don't know if they weren't caught. This was fifth of July, seventeen ninety nine, mm-hmm. in London. It's a very proud home pride. Yes. Um and it was a man who took a wager for ten guineas to run from Cheapside to Cornhill. He was caught and he was put in prison. Well, that's the thing. You still can, of course, get put in prison for streaking, can't you? I don't think people are very often, but they're detained and they get a criminal yeah. record, I think. Britain's first sports streaker uh, was uh, the Australian Michael O'Brien. And in 1974, he ran naked into the middle of England versus France rugby at Twickenham. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was for a £10 dare. He was a stockbroker, so did he really need the £10? Oh, and then um, there was an iconic photo because a policeman covered his genitals with uh, his helmet. And uh, there's oh. this kind of Christ-like picture of the streaker with oh, his I've arms aloft. Yeah, 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 it's a famous picture. A famous picture and then yeah. the helmet, and the helmet was auctioned off for charity in the year 2000. How naked would you get for money? About as naked as I am now. <laughs> so just to cover that, my head, tights. my head and my forearms are visible. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, okay, uh, if um, oh, I don't know, think of a plausible but ridiculous situation. Well, Heat like magazine, comic or something. yes, exactly. Ask us to do a photo shoot for oh, comedy Jesus. podcasters, and they want us in swimsuits. No one wants to see that. Would you wear a swimsuit? The reason I'm asking is actually I wouldn't... I don't think I'd want to be photographed topless. No. It's odd because there's loads of holiday photos of me topless. But the idea that it's going into the public domain now with the internet and stuff, I just wouldn't want to put a picture of me out there where that was the case. Here's an idea. If that ever happened, and God forbid... (laughs) Suicide pact. No. (laughs) We... I think the only way we would consider it would be if it was some kind of charity fundraiser thing. Yeah. I think the way to deal with it would be to raise funds for the charity getting people to give so that we don't take our clothes off okay what's it worth not having to see that it's worth a lot (laughs) good well i'm glad we've discussed it got a plan hi it's izzy from london my question is which came first the slush puppy or the hush puppy uh the hush puppy by some margin came first i'm not surprised uh hush puppy shoes founded 1958 uh, mm-hmm. Slush puppies, not until 1972. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in case you are curious, the official term for what a slush puppy is is an iced crystal drink. Or a non-posh granita. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it just looks like mashed up urinal cake in a glass, doesn't it? Basically. <laughs> never going to drink one again now. Well, I never have. What? Basic? No, no, no. I never have. Basically, since going pubic was the end of that sentence. Well, now you have frappuccinos. Um, I guess. Which are kind of the same. Mm, yeah, but all the things that attracted me as a child to slush puppies are the things that turn me off now. The right. lurid colours, the indistinct flavours. The fact that after you've been drinking it for a very short time, it tastes of nothing because all the flavour gets sucked up really quickly. The origin story of slush puppies and why they're called that is, uh-huh. is rather dull. Oh. Um, it's basically this guy called Will Radcliffe from Cincinnati, who was an entrepreneur, spotted uh, an ice slushy machine and thought, ah, oh, let's market that at children, and then came up with the name with his kids one day on his porch. The origin story of the name of Hush Puppies is better. Okay, so hold on. Slush Puppies is a derivative idea and slushies already existed. Yes, although right. they weren't marketed quite at children in quite that way with the character and everything else. Whereas Hush Puppies, not that appealing to children. No. The comfortable shoes. Yes. Well, the origin of Hush Puppies is rather more interesting. Curiously, both stories, Hush and Slush, mm-hmm. involve Chicago. 
Ooh. Uh, it was, it's uh, a very Osh kind of place. <laughs> Chicago-ish, they call it. Um, <laughs> um, Will Radcliffe had spotted this slushy machine that he ripped off in 1970 at a Chicago trade show. Yep. Uh, and in the Hush Puppy story, it was the uh, National Shoe Fair in Chicago in Ooh. 1958. Yeah, pretty exciting event. Shame we weren't alive to witness that one. <laughs> um, it was at the National Shoe Fair yes. in Chicago that the Hush Puppy was introduced as the world's first casual shoe. What? Now, that seems like a brazen claim, considering, you know, people had invented sandals. And slippers. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the origin of the name is more interesting than than with Slush. Mm-hmm. Partly because it was coined by the brand's first sales manager, James Gaylord Muir. James Gaylord Muir was having dinner one day and was talking about the traditional southern food of the district. The hush puppy. The hush puppy. So you know, I, kn- I didn't know about this. Explain what a hush puppy is, is as it, a foodstuff. Is it kind of like a non-sweet donut? Exactly. So it's made of corn flour. It's a deep fried southern Combo. snack. They were known as hush puppies because you actually gave a large portion of the food to the dogs. Oh, really? So it was just an accompaniment to the meal. You'd have a few, but then you'd throw the rest on the floor for the dogs and it would hush the puppies away yep, yep. from eating the tasty stuff like the chicken. But it's mm. odd that they're not called hush dogs because there are more dogs than puppies in this world. That's a good point. Apparently, the person who'd explain And this is where the origin story, I think, sounds a bit suspicious, like it's uh-huh. become a bit too immortalised. Yes. Apparently, the southerner who was explaining to James Gaylord Muir about the origins of the uh, southern food stuff said we give this out to quiet our barking dogs the connection that he then made was that barking dogs is slang for feet oh sore feet oh i got barking dogs why is my feet hurt why is that i know it sounds a bit like they may have made this up afterwards doesn't it but then he apparently thought ah what do you do to soothe your barking feet i.e your sore feet you wear hush puppies I think it's more likely that the first casual shoes were made of cornmeal and deep fried. (laughs) If you don't even know what a question is, then you're probably at the wrong place. Because religion's on godcasts, dogs are on dogcasts, fish are on rodcasts, but we don't do fish. Because on this podcast, you answer me this. Uh, Here's a question from Andy from Leeds, who says, Since I was a teenager, our society has required that I have a signature. Damn society. A notion of which I was not in any way prepared for. Really? As a child, I was always thinking about having a signature when I was older. It looked so exciting, didn't it? I think it's because I just assumed I'd be a celebrity, so I had to get an autograph ready. And it's lucky that you prepared, because it's all paid off. Absolutely, yeah. I was thinking podcaster z-list i think i practiced it as well but i think it's because i was trying to reconcile myself to my name which i didn't like all that much when i was a child your signature is beautiful two z's and you make a feature of them which is good yeah well not as much as my dad can got an extra z yeah he's i mean he's got his cool interlocking z's andy says i ended up just scribbling my name in a messy scrawl assuming this was standard practice having only seen my parents signatures and a handful of sporting autographs Mm -hmm. however as I get to the age of adulthood where my signature is required on a regular basis, really? With checkbooks no longer really being in place. I was going to say, decreasingly so is it yeah. required. Chip and pin has really ruined the signature. Yeah. Uh, this necessary scribble that I'm compelled to repeat now fills me with feelings of disdain and regret. Oh, you've got a rubbish signature. Oh, I hate myself. <laughs> I feel is it like that, Andy? I, th- I think it is, is yeah. Is that your interior monologue? 
you've just reiterated the thoughts that have been torturing him privately. I feel like I should have been given fair warning, an opportunity to practice and finally hone it before it became perpetual. Yeah, that's what school maths classes are for. That's what I, like the whole way through my GCSE maths class, which is probably why I got a B, not an A. uh, (laughs) Oli man, Oli man. (laughs) I spent practicing my autograph. No, Oliver, actually. Sorry. Is it still Oliver? On my uh, checkbooks and stuff, yes. Because that is my name. Yeah. Um, But my star autograph is Ollie. Which I didn't have to ever sign until we got our book published. And then yeah. when we were signing books for the first time, I had to think, God, I've got to sign Ollie. Yeah. That's weird. Mine reduced down to just HZ because um, 13 letters gets exhausting. It's repetitious, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. But, but I did a different thing with the Y then. Because with the Y, you can go all the way down to the bottom of the page, oh, which I can't can. do with Oliver. No, that's, that's the true. The R goes nowhere. No, nothing hanging under the line. So I prefer signing Ollie now. But at the time, I practised Oliver. Mm. And I did, I mean, seriously, when I was... 14, 15, I, I was imagining it behind me on the chat show, a bit like Alan Partridge's signature. I think that should and could still happen. I think that's ridiculous. Most chat show hosts don't have a backdrop of their own signature now. They Russell have, Harty did. Yeah, but that's a long time ago. Now they all have backdrops of a New York City skyline. Yes, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. But now, like, I can't remember the last time I had to sign something. The bank has a series of security questions now. It uses chip and pin. No one has ever looked at my signature on my passport and compared it to another signature. Yeah, it's a shame in a way. But of course it is better in a more important way. You can hire people to redesign your signature for you. Can you really? Oh my God, what a job. What a a literally invented and ridiculous job. Yeah, but well done them for having the moxie to, to tout that as a trade. I wonder what kind of advice they give you. Do you think they sort of, like a designer, actually write out for you a new one? Or do they just say, yeah, you could do with a bit more curve here, or this is making you look a bit severe? Or maybe if you arrange the letters this way, it will look like a logo, and mm. then the rest follows. I mean, they could they could advise Andy, because he's like, I've made these improvements. But they could be like, look, you're on the right track, but it's not fully formed yet, for instance. I remember having to hone my handwriting over years at school. They were very insistent on this. And I wonder whether now, because you're typing probably from quite a young age at school, Mm. whether there is that emphasis on having beautiful handwriting. I think there probably is. But again, you went to a posh school, didn't you? Useless skill. Yeah, but it's part of what your parents are paying for, isn't it? Yeah, but it's no good to me now. No one cares what my handwriting's like. Well, I was just about to say, whereas the Latin, that's really useful, but actually you do use the Latin. Yeah. I once got chatted up on the basis of uh, my signature. I was countersigning um, a cheque for somebody at a college bar. Uh-huh. I was like, oh, you've got beautiful handwriting. Oh, really? And uh, that was the start of something. Was it Was it actually the start of something? Yeah. Was it? Yeah. For like what? a year and a half. Wow. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> Andy says, I have recently been playing around with my signature and have come up with a much smoother, neater, and more importantly, cooler signature. Okay. So, Ollie, answer me this, please. Are we stuck with the same signature for life? No, there's no, you can change your signature whenever you like. There's no legal requirement even to have a signature. You can just have a splodge. Is that right? Yeah. They just need you to make a mark. Yeah, but you do need to make the same mark. Well, you don't need to. No, you don't. But you're going to get yourself in all kinds of trouble if you keep changing it. But I think also most people will it'll look like the same person has written their own name. Unless you radically change everything about your handwriting. Well, Bits of it will look identifiably yours. You're saying there's no legal requirement... If you're signing something very serious that's a legal document, for example, deeds to a home for which you've paid hundreds of thousands of pounds, I think you would be unwise to draw Bart Simpson on that and then have on your passport a completely different signature because there is a chance that that document could end up in court and that could be debated. So although there's not a requirement, it's common sense to do a little bit of conforming, isn't it? What would be sensible would be to transition Mm -hmm. on a non-essential document and then you've got a a paper trail of... Yes, you can show the evolution 
I suppose, stylistically. Yes, although it is actually uh, one of the reasons you're allowed to change your passport is you can say, I've changed my signature. That's an expensive mm. thing to do. I think with your bank, you just can make sure that they've got a copy of both of your signatures. Yes. Um, but people change their signatures all the time. Like when people change their names, their signature's going to change. And like my dad's handwriting's changed with Parkinson's. That's one of the first symptoms, actually, that your handwriting oh, alters. Really, yeah. So his signature's going to be different. They can't be like, no, can you do it again like the old days, can they? I had to tra- I changed my signature. Um, I used to work on a fruit farm. I had to sign off cards which said how much fruit people had collected. I was like the overseer. It, uh-huh. wasn't, it wasn't a very fun job. Um, I used to write out my full name, which is too long, and it just turned into Mousk at some point. Mousewick. It was Mousk. So that's my signature name. It's really much, is. much shorter. But when you're doing that like 50 times a day, you don't want to, as Helen says, write 13 characters, whatever it is. My mum's signature is her just writing her name in her handwriting. That's harder, mm. harder to forge than the ones that are more abstract. Is it? Yep. Mm. But it's also weird, isn't it? Like to not have at any point in your life thought, I'm going to give myself a snazzy signature. Presumably you don't, I mean, you have now signed autographs. Presumably you don't, you said you didn't, but you wouldn't sign autographs with your actual signature because someone might take that away and buy Ooh. a house uh, no I do if anyone's got a copy of the answer me this book that I've signed that's basically my signature you can rip me Ooh. off of that. I yeah. think, I think did you write your pin number down as well <laughs> I think it would take more than my signature for someone to be able to buy a house as me since that's something even I have not achieved well that brings us to the end of this episode of answer me this well done for coming all this way with us it's an endurance test but it's also um, quietly dignified what <laughs> I was going to say do you think so I've never thought of the words quiet or dignified in the context of answer me this but okay you know we've all been on a journey that's what i was searching for okay but send us your questions listeners in order to create further journeys for us all to go on uh, via email phone and skype and our contact details are on our website answermethispodcast.com remember whilst you are on our website that you can also follow the links there to buy uh, our classic episodes and our apps and our albums by the way as you mentioned the apps i'm very sorry to anyone uh, who the previous episode noticed there was not the bonus bit of crap uh, especially for you app owners i was on holiday and i forgot yeah but, but you... i don't normally there are like 200 on there there are yeah this is it's a good opportunity even Sorry. though we technically failed you it's a good opportunity to, to remind you every single episode on the app there's a bonus bit of content which was stuff that was too good to uh leave on the cutting room floor <laughs> and too good to go in the show yeah. um so yes uh, you can buy the app from answer me this store.com for apple and android and windows correct I think. yeah uh remember as well when you're on our website to take out our audible offer choose from hundreds of thousands of books but we get money if you do yeah answer me this podcast.com slash audible on our website as well you can follow us on twitter and facebook and, and keep on asking keep on asking those questions never stop being stay inquisitive. curious people so curious you're such precious little curious creatures bye, bye.